What the sust? 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 Hey guys, welcome back to What the Sus podcast, coming at you with a whole new season and a whole new team. We're sorry to any listeners from last season who might be disappointed that it's not the same team from last year, but we can tell you that we are so, so excited and grateful to be here, filling in those big shoes, and hopefully we can interest you in sustainability issues the way that the last team did. And hopefully we have some new listeners here. Um, Big shout out to the CKDU for letting us record We love their nice fancy equipment. We are using their nice microphones and their nice recording systems. And we are just so excited to connect with you guys on different levels. So one of the things that we're trying to implement this year is this connection with our audience. So we're going to be engaging with you guys on the streets for street interviews. And we're going to be trying to ask you guys more questions that we can answer on the podcast. Our main goal is to bring to you accessible, interesting sustainability issues and also to hear back from you of how you feel and what you know about sustainability issues. So yeah, we're here with you today. I'm going to be one of your guys' hosts for this episode. My name is Lily and I'm here with... I'm Sophie. I'll be your other host today. We're two of the five members of the new team, but ideally you'll be hearing everyone's voices on here at some point during this season. All right, so let's get started. Today's episode is centered around food insecurity. We are going to break up this episode into various sections to dissect this topic. We are first going to start by diving into the deep historic roots of food insecurity. We will then go into analyzing what is going on in our world today and finish off with what the future of food insecurity looks like and what we can do about it. I'm so excited. That sounds so awesome. But first, we want to recognize that this episode is being recorded on the unceded territory of the Mi'kma'ki. It is important that we acknowledge the traditional knowledge held by the Mi'kmaq and consider their perspectives in the fight against food insecurity. We want to recognize that we are on Mi'kma'ki land for many reasons, but especially because there are many Indigenous communities across Canada who are unjustly combating against food insecurity. We have learned a lot about how Indigenous communities are disproportionately affected by a lot of issues in Canada. One of my friends recently visited an Inuit community in Nunavut called Pond Inlet, and the prices of food there were absolutely outrageous. They were selling a liter of Dasani water for $9.49. Wow. There was frozen Eggos for $23. Yeah, that's insane. And the prices just get more ridiculous from there, and it's really, really scary to see. There are many other factors at play, creating food insecurity for Indigenous individuals in Canada, such as economic disadvantages and lack of access to transportation. At the heart of these issues is the fact that the land that we live on, grow food on, and profit from today is land that was never ceded from the Mi'kmaq, and thus has created generational traumas and inequalities that only intentional reconciliation can heal. We are all treaty people. Let's begin by identifying and defining the issue we will be discussing. Lily, first, can you tell us what food security is? Well, according to food access analysts, food security is the ability to acquire or consume the necessary dietary nutrients to life in sufficient quantities and in socially acceptable ways that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy lifestyle. So that was a mouthful, but basically food insecurity is the opposite of this. So it is the inability to access enough food of an adequate quality to meet their basic needs. And unfortunately, a vast number of people face this food insecurity. To better understand the scope of this issue, we're going to throw some big numbers at you. 
In 2021, 193 million people globally were food insecure. And in one year, that number rose to 258 million. Okay, those are some really big numbers. But to put those big numbers into something that we contextualize, 258 million is about 3% of the population. 3% of the global population may not seem like a lot, but in reality, it is huge. That's more people living with food insecurity than living in the fifth most populated country, which is Pakistan. Though it may come as no surprise to most listeners that there are people globally who cannot meet this basic need, it may be even more shocking to hear that in 2022, 213,000 of those people were Nova Scotians. So evidently, food insecurity is a big problem and seems to only be getting worse. What factors are impacting it? Some of the factors that influence these statistics include increasing housing costs, precarious work, low wages, and systematic oppression. Each of these are at play in creating food insecurity in Nova Scotia. So, we know that food insecurity is running rampant, and we know that it is impacting us here in the Maritimes, but when did it originate? Well, there's actually a complex global history behind the food systems that have shaped it into the deeply flawed structure it is today. Humans throughout history have always been on a quest for survival, and when the human population began exponentially growing, solutions had to be found to feed this increasing number of people. However, these solutions that were found have actually created and exacerbated the issues we currently face. Therefore, we must first visit the past to better understand the present issue of food insecurity. Let's briefly look into the history of agriculture. So, although agriculture has been expanding in scale since the early 1700s, an influential scientist, Thomas Mathis, was one of the first to place distrust in our food systems when he warned that very soon the world's population would exceed the Earth's capacity to produce food. As the population grew exponentially after World War II with the baby boom, so did the need to produce food. Thankfully, society managed to stave off Mathis's ominous prediction by advancing three interventions. Genetic modification, harnessing energy to improve mechanization, and developing synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Wielding innovative breakthroughs, farmers opted to further optimize their work by growing monocultures, and livestock production ramped up in response to the increasing abundance of feed. This is known as the Green Revolution. To simplify these terms a bit, we were basically able to harness our agricultural processes with smart mechanization and technological advancements to increase self-sufficiency. As we all know, unfortunately, every victory comes with new challenges. And this actually is a very common theme in most sustainability issues. Yes, a lot of sustainability issues that we will be talking about on this podcast are wicked problems. Wicked problems are hard to define, they're hard to identify the people who are affected by the problems, and they tend to affect many different sectors. It can be economic, environmental, human health, all kinds of things. Yes, wicked problems seem to be a big snowball of problems, and when you try to come up with a solution, it they only create more problems. It's just a, it's a really complex issue. And there's so many variants, and yeah, that's basically what a wicked problem is. And most sustainability issues are wicked problems, because sustainability is a school of thought that involves all of the sectors and looks to ways to improve all of them together. And in order to do that, you have to consider the trade-offs and the potential consequences to the solutions you might come up with. So it's very intricate. It's very complex. There's rarely a one-size-fits-all problem, but that's what makes sustainability problems so interesting to talk about and find solutions for. So yeah, for food insecurity, 
While these innovative breakthroughs seem to have given us access to unlimited foods, they are also associated with significant societal and environmental trade-offs. For example, forests and habitats would have to be destroyed to make space for crops and livestock, and people in developing nations are often being exploited for exports. It's really scary stuff, Lily. Did you know that the nutritional quality in food is also diminishing? Uh, what does that even mean? Well, some food species have been selected in labs to prioritize rapid growth and cheap production rather than maximizing nutritional value. A classic capitalistic move, prioritizing profit over the quality of the food we eat. Furthermore, 30% of all agricultural growth is diverted to feeding livestock, making livestock some of the most resource-intensive and polluting food varieties today. It is also worth noting that there have long been concerns about the ethical implications of exposing livestock to arguably over-industrialized conditions. What do you think about that? Well, as a child, one of the first things that made me aware of the way that humans impact the world around us is learning about the industrialized processes that animals are put through to feed us, like chickens and pigs and cows especially. It always really struck a chord with me from a young age. And so that was really one of the main things is like animal rights and stuff like that that has really drawn me to sustainability issues as a whole. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really understand exactly the conditions that animals are put through when we're, you know, going to process them for food. But it's pretty horrific in most cases. The cutting-edge technology produced in this era and years to follow also came with specialization and competition, and now food production processes have been fragmented across the world. This has created competition to optimize production and offer the best value. This globalization has intense implications, not least of all being the massive amounts of carbon released into the environment to transport food. Some people have capitalized on this system, hoarding food and attempting to maintain profits, while other communities were left with famine, having to export what little food their area has. As we just discussed, the Green Revolution was able to feed mass amounts of people, but there were many side effects. To its benefit, though, the Green Revolution brought us new ways to produce more for less. Now that we've done a bit of a deep dive into the background of our food systems, let's tighten the scope. Lily, do you know how many Haligonians and or Dow students are up against food insecurity? And also, what demographic features contribute to a higher likelihood of food insecurity? According to Feed Nova Scotia, about one-fourth of the population in Nova Scotia is food insecure, which is an insane amount of people. The profile of this group seems to be disproportionately made up of younger Canadians, those living in precarious precarious and or rental housing, new immigrants, single people, those with mental and physical challenges, and black and indigenous people. Although at the time of recording, we haven't found any Dalhousie-specific data, we did find a study conducted among among 1,030 students attending an anonymous university in rural Nova Scotia. This revealed that 38% of participants experienced food insecurity in the previous 12 months. This study was notably conducted in 2018, which is before the world experienced the lasting effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. This study revealed that besides hunger, experiencing food insecurity cascades into four types of effects, struggling to satisfy basic needs, impaired health, loss of time spent learning, and impacted social life. One thing about sustainability issues, as we kind of mentioned before, like these four negative effects will likely impede on themselves and they will cascade into even more negative effects. We now know that food insecurity has negative impacts, but why does it exist? 
Food insecurity exists for a number of reasons, but essentially it exists because people cannot afford to buy food. Poverty, insufficient income, joblessness, elevated food costs, restricted availability to nourishing food, discrimination, worldwide economic dynamics, climate change-related disturbances, conflicts, infrastructural deficits, suboptimal farming methods, and educational shortfalls are all elements that work together to hinder individuals and communities from obtaining a sufficient and nourishing diet, resulting in hunger and malnutrition. It is also important to note that the solutions for food insecurity do not apply evenly to everyone. There are issues of accessibility that will always arise, such as accessibility to transportation, to access resources, as well as some individuals are just less able to cope with the administrative burden required to register for services. Furthermore, others may have dietary or cultural restrictions and cannot find the appropriate food amongst the services that are offered. At this point in the story of food insecurity, things may seem sort of bleak. It is a complex problem shaped by a vast global history. It must be solved with diligence so that the solutions found do not create even more problems. Like all sustainability issues, food insecurity isn't going to have a one-size-fits-all solution. However, this actually creates many opportunities because its complexity makes food insecurity compatible through many different actions, big and small. So, one solution is that we have food banks and welfare assistance in our arsenal, however imperfect and problematic it may be. As a first point of contact, 211 is a telephone number for anyone in Nova Scotia that they can call 24-7 to speak to someone who can help connect you with resources in your community. Furthermore, Feed Nova Scotia's website has a helpful search engine that allows users to locate resources for themselves by identifying meal programs and food banks in any given region. The Dalhousie community is also preparing for the fight against food insecurity. We have the DSU Food Bank, where you can book an appointment, show your ID, and fill a bag. There is also a shared fridge next to the Glitter Bean Cafe, where community members can drop off and pick up items as they wish. Free community meals are also an occasional treat we see on campus and throughout Halifax, whether it be weekly lunches at the Soup Kitchen on Maynard Street, at Dalhousie Society meetings and events, at local churches, or even informally amongst Facebook groups dedicated to getting together and cooking meals. We are now going to take a moment to shout out a community meal that is actually going on at the College of Sustainability on campus on October 26th. So that is next Thursday from when we are posting this podcast. It can be found in room 1401 in the Mona Campbell, and it is being hosted by the YESS and is for Dal and King students, faculty, and staff. So this is going to be a safe place for people to gather around a warm meal and get to know one another. So that's super exciting. If you're interested, please RSVP so that they can have enough food for everyone. You can find the RSVP in the College of Sustainability's Instagram bio, Dal Sust Life. Bring your own cups, your own dishes, your own utensils, and feel free to check that out. I think it'll be a super nice event. I think maybe some of us are going to be there, and we're excited. I've never been to one, but I've seen some pictures of the meals they've made, and I've talked to people, and they see, they sound and look delicious every time. Now, moving on to another solution that we have on campus. One of our favorites that many students rely on, especially, is a food security cooperative in the student union building called the Loaded Ladle, which offers a variety of plant-based meals every week for free. 
We love the ladle. It's so good. It's located on, I think, the first floor of the Dallas Student Union Building. And there's always a huge line. It's open from Monday to Friday during the lunch hours. And you can just go. You wait in the line. It's worth it, I promise. And they give you a free meal. And it's awesome. You can also bring your own Tupperware. You can leave it there and pick it up whenever you're ready to get your food. Such a delicious and inventive way to battle food insecurity here on campus. Also, if you're looking to get involved with their team, you can volunteer. They are always looking for volunteers to make the food, prepare the food. It's really just an awesome organization on campus. These organizations are doing great work from the community level standpoint, but they do not apply evenly throughout the community. Thus, there are some unresolved gaps. Let's look at some systematic changes that are being implemented. First, many of these organizations also try striving to increase food security through their own activism projects, which is furthered by community members who may advocate to government and help create awareness. Some organizations, such as Second Harvest, are also tackling supply chains by rescuing excess produce or imperfect foods and funneling them back into the community. Food production is also being spiked through innovations in the way we grow food. This may get a little complex, so bear with us, but some innovations include both hydroponics and vertical farming, which allow farmers to grow more for less. Also, genetically modified foods are being grown on larger scales so that they can better withstand poor environmental conditions. We all know that you need good weather and crop conditions to grow food, so farmers have been adopting genetically modified seeds that are better equipped to handle the future challenges that are inevitable with climate change, like more intense and frequent storms and drought. An array of biotechnical tools have also been developed to care for soil, to use resources with greater precision. There are a lot of techie solutions that exist, obviously, as we just stated, um, that are doing a really good job at ensuring that food production can continue. But to bring matters back to a more relatable level, let's talk about us, the consumers. Consumers actively determine the fate of food production. By choosing to buy fair trade, which helps prevent the exploitation of foreign food resources, or by contributing to local composting programs, which allows farmers to better access quality soil and diminishes the need for expensive and destructive fertilizers. As consumers, it can feel impossible to create change in systems that sprawl across the entire planet, and it may be tempting to sit back and let policy changes or technological innovations create solutions to food insecurity. However, policies and tech will not solve food insecurity on its own. The issues involved with food insecurity are too complicated and pervasive. Something that we want to capitalize on is making an impact on smaller scales. Individuals and communities can create real, meaningful change in their own lives. Many small actions can add up to massive reductions in food insecurity. So don't feel discouraged or fall into traps of perfectionism because any effort is better than none. Here are a few tips we've compiled for listeners to try implementing into their own lives to reduce the environmental costs of their food habits. One thing you could do is learn proper storage techniques for fresh produce. By doing some background research, you can find the best storage methods for expensive fruit and veggies. For example, you could do a quick Google search to bring up an array of articles on how to store something like lettuce and keep it fresh and crispy for up to 10 days. You could also not shy away from frozen, canned, and dehydrated foods. They last longer and retain most of their nutrients. For some reason, there has long been a bias against frozen or canned foods. People assume that it is not as nutritious or as fresh as their counterparts. However, there has been extensive research and it has concluded that there is no significant difference in nutritional value between frozen, fresh, and canned foods. 
You could also try growing from scraps. Vegetables like onions, carrots, celery, lettuce, garlic, and most herbs can be regrown from cuttings. Or you could find other things to do with your scraps. For example, some leftovers can be repurposed into kimchi, jams, vegetable stock, air fresheners, or even composted. You could also try experimenting making new meals with your friends. You can share the cost and the result. That way, if it doesn't turn out, the financial loss is significantly less. Some would also suggest dietary changes, but this is not a solution we personally feel comfortable advocating to all of our listeners for reasons we will delve into shortly. What is really critical is that we must recognize that food security is not a privilege, but a basic right. We must create systems that acknowledge this minimum standard. In the meantime, we encourage you to consider supporting the food security organizations we spoke about that exist within our community. The journey forward also includes destigmatizing, seeking help, and normalizing dietary cultural accommodations so that everyone can have access to the unique solutions that will suit their needs best without judgment. Strengthening local food industries is also a good idea to not only improve our own resiliency, but to lessen the strain we put on global imports and their associated communities. A lot of research has gone into finding other policy solutions, such as income-based food assistance. However, the effectiveness of policies can be contentious. So, ideas like income-based assistance should ideally be paired with individual and community action. Now, on the other hand, food production can also be better safeguarded. More can be done to rescue food at various stages before it becomes food waste, and food consumption patterns could shift to favor less resource-intensive foods, like plant-based alternatives to meat. Now, we're just going to have a little pause on this last point about shifting food consumption patterns. We just want to note here that although there can be significant benefits, changing your personal diet is a very sensitive undertaking. The food we eat is an extension of our upbringings, our beliefs, or even the physiological preferences of our taste buds. As such, it is important not to moralize food as good or bad, regardless of what planetary impact it might have. Always, always put your mental and physical health first and consider consulting with a medical professional if you have intentions of shifting your diet. Now, Lily, you used to be a vegetarian, didn't you? Can you talk to us about that dietary shift and why you did it? Yeah, actually, I was a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for a couple years after watching a really spooky documentary about our food systems and kind of what goes into producing the meat that we consume and kind of what those processes look, look like. So after watching that documentary, I completely stopped eating meat and it was a really good solution for me for a while. Like I felt really good. I ate a lot of plant-based proteins and I felt good for a long time. But honestly, it was getting to the point where I just, I didn't know what to make for myself. Like I was kind of, I was getting tired of tofu and I, I kind of, I was craving chicken. So I did stop. I did stop being a vegetarian and I... I think that kind of comes with a lot of stigma. For sure. Yeah. Like, I kind of felt bad about it. Like, I stopped recently, I guess, like a year ago. And so I have slowly reintroduced meat into my diet. Mm -hmm. But it definitely is something that when you start thinking about it, you are more conscious. So it doesn't have to be a complete shift away from meat completely. It can be small, like, choices. And, yeah, what do you think about it? I totally agree. I think that there is um I think that there is definitely a lot of benefit to shifting your diet, but I think that it is something that you have to do when and how it suits you the best, and I think that it's very easy for people to start preaching that you have to stop eating meat in order to make an effect 
or change the impacts of your diet, but that's not necessarily true. And ultimately, you should be doing what feels the best for you, is what I would say. I've definitely cut out meat for a, for a while, not completely, but it just made the most sense for me for a while. I was having a lot of guilt, and it felt like the right solution for me. But then eventually, it just started causing me too much stress. It was affecting my mental health, so I shifted my diet again and and these are things that we kind of did on our own and we're not saying that everyone should do them but they can be useful and not to do them lightly it's a big deal to shift your diet and I personally was feeling effects from shifting away from me and then shifting back to it and it's not something that you should take as lightly as I think some people do yeah so definitely don't stress about it if you're not vegetarian or you're not vegan that is okay we still accept you in the sustainability community But it is, like having said all that, environmental impact studies from 2015 do show that land use and greenhouse gas emissions in the food industry could be as much as halved following a shift away from meat to more plant-based options. And this potential for emissions reductions comes predominantly from Western countries where meat consumption is well above the global average. This has resulted in the conclusion that reducing meat consumption could lower the environmental cost from our food systems without requiring full removal of meat from our diets. Food production can also be accelerated by boosting the population of different pollinating species. Diversifying gardens, greening urban spaces, and rotating the selection of foods grown on cropland, as well as avoiding broad-spectrum insecticides, can all be methods of ensuring pollinators have adequate food and habitat. We've all seen the bee movie. We know how important those pollinators are to our food systems. We do love the bees. Ongoing work to build healthy ecosystems will also be essential moving forward. This is because healthy ecosystems ensure that the environment in which our food grows is more resilient to natural disasters and other threats. The root of this and many other issues we will discuss in this podcast lies within the lack of understanding and respect humanity has for our planet Earth. In conclusion, there is a fair amount of uncertainty over how to best address food insecurity. There is no singular solution that can be implemented universally to bring about food security, but there are small ways each of us can improve the food systems in our own lives and in our communities. It's really, really easy to feel overwhelmed by problems like this. It feels like as much as it directly affects our daily lives, it's something so much bigger than any one individual. But I think what's really important to remember here is that that's not necessarily just a scary thing. It also creates a lot of opportunity for us. We can go out into our communities, we can connect more with the people around us, and we can see the action of others in your communities. And nothing brings more hope to me than that. Food security is embedded in a vast network of social, environmental, and economic factors. And it is an issue that goes beyond just our generation. It will affect future generations as populations grow and resources become even more scarce. Finding solutions within our own communities is the best way to start at the individual level. Wow. Thank you so much, Lily. This has been so much fun. And thank you so much to all of our listeners for joining us here today. Yes, this will be the end of the episode. We hope that we kind of described food insecurity to you guys on a more understandable level, but also diving into the complexities of it and to give you a well-rounded understanding of what it is and how it affects us in Nova Scotia. And most of all, we really hope that we didn't scare you too much. Yeah, it's a spooky season right now, October. Which means that it's it's okay to be a little scared because it's reasonable to be a little scared. Yeah, it's real and it is affecting us in our communities. 
But never forget that there's always opportunities to create hope, to create change, whether it's a tiny little change in your own life or whether it's reaching out and creating change in your larger community. Every little bit counts. And we are here for you guys. Follow us on our social medias at What the Sus Pod on Instagram, on Facebook. We're going to start posting on TikTok soon. So hopefully you guys can engage with us. We hope to see more listeners out at community events moving forward. And maybe you'll even get the chance to get interviewed by us. What the Sust will be hitting the streets every couple weeks for some street interviews. We're going to be walking around with our little tiny microphone and asking you questions if you are willing to answer them. Yeah, this concludes this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Happy October! While this podcast is supported by the College of Sustainability at Dalhousie University, the thoughts and beliefs shared by hosts do not reflect the views of Dalhousie University. If you have any questions or concerns about sustainability, DM us on social media or send us an email at WTSUST, so W-T-S-U-S-T, at gmail.com, and we will try to answer them on this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Bye.